Well, good morning. Been waiting to preach since uh, since last Sunday, but the elements had uh, other ideas about it. But that's all right because when a pastor prepares, you have to get it out. And uh, having having two weeks to have it stir, it's not always a good thing because my message kept getting larger and larger. And, but that's all right. And so uh, we come to a uh, a great set of verses this morning in God's Word. And as we do, uh, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer so the Spirit of God can speak to our hearts. Father, we thank you that we can come to your written revelation to us in the exact format that you wanted it to. And we can open it up and we can study it. And through the things that we learn, though they're highly important, it can be just knowledge. But we ask for the Spirit of God to take the principles and truths that we learn and to apply it to our heart so that we can not only understand it, but have it transform the way that we think and the way that we live. For Father, we are all here this morning to praise your name and to adore you. And each one of us is at a different place in our life, or each one of us goes through trials, whether or not they're ongoing trials or they're daily trials, and there are burdens on our heart, there are distractions that can take our minds off of you. And no matter where we are, we ask that we can leave them at the foot of the cross so that we can see you in all of your glory and all of your splendor, so that when we see Christ It is more than just a head knowledge, but it is a deepening of our faith that will just uh, transform our lives so that we leave this place different than as we entered its its doors. So speak to us, Father. We pray pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, please open it up to John chapter 6, because every pastor has a set of a series that they are itching to do, or a set of uh, books they want to preach through, or even theological topics. And this is one to where that has been on my upper list for a while, and I started this at the beginning of the year, and i am almost completed it, but uh, I hope that you get to enjoy it. In John chapter 6, we come to one of our Lord's uh, fantastic statements that he makes, and it is one to where when you begin to get an understanding of it, it will transform your lives, for it is more than just an, a passage about evangelism, to where it calls the sinner to faith. But it's also a passage in which it deepens the believer's walk with him. It enriches, and it, uh, hopefully um, you'll find it um, a tremendous uh, satisfaction for your own heart. So in John chapter 6, let me just begin reading in verse 26 to sort of set the immediate context. In verse 26 of John chapter 6, our Lord is speaking and he's preaching and he says this, Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes 
but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, and he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God, that is which comes down out of heaven and gives, you, and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who, who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds my Son believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is such a great passage and we're going to be looking at one verse that stands out here. But it's interesting because we're in the, the middle of March right now. And at the beginning of the new year, and as spring is now approaching, I had my sights on making some changes in my life. Or I needed to lose some weight. And so um, to get me to that decision, I wanted to get a new suit. And then I went there and... Uh, the guy at the suit place said, you need a custom suit. Oh, why? Well, the, the pudge is getting a little bit pudgier. And I went to another suit place and he said, you need a custom suit. So it was time for me to begin to lose that pudge because no sense of getting a new suit until you sort of lose the pudge. But anyway, it's interesting because as I begin to sort of look at how I ate and what foods I would consume. Um, and when you begin to sort of cut back and sort of go on a diet, it's interesting because all, when you're on a diet, all you think about is food. You start craving things that you haven't eaten in a long time. And I kept thinking about fried scallops and fried shrimp and just things to where I haven't had in a long time, but they were constantly in my mind. Just cravings, things that I just wanted to eat. And it's interesting because that's what the body does. It begins to sort of yearn for things, craze for things, until it gets satisfied with those things. 
But those are elements that's on the physical realm of things. But as we come to this one passage, our Lord is looking at things from a spiritual element because this passage is going to be talking about hungering, about craving certain things, and how when you begin to look at our Lord's statement in verse 35, our Lord is going to say there is one thing that brings about true satisfaction, and that is those things that are found in him. And man, throughout their life, they look for the, the big whys. Why am I here? You know, what purposes um, am I here for? Um, if, if I were to die, what else is out there? And those are questions that philosophy tries to answer. Religion tries to answer those things. And people sort of dabble in this and they dabble in that and they try to satisfy those cravings that they have. And in some ways, they never try, they never find true satisfaction. But as we come to John chapter 6, John writes his gospel to present Jesus in such a way that when people read it, that they will believe. And that's exactly what John says in John chapter 20 and verse 31, that those things that he writes that they may believe that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, they would have life in his name. And so, G, uh, so uh, John writes this gospel of his to emphasize that Jesus was God in the flesh. And he does so by building his argument on seven signs in which Jesus, Jesus performs and on the seven great I Am statements. And we're going to be looking at the first great I am statement this this morning. Because here in John chapter 6, our Lord says that I am the bread of life. He goes on to say in the following chapters that I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then by John chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine. And he chooses these seven I am statements to show that Jesus was more than just a good teacher, more than just a a good philosopher, more than just a miracle worker. But he puts him on display to show that he is the son of God who came to the world to save mankind from their sin. And so here in John Chapter 6, in verse 35, Jesus says this tremendous statement as he preaches a sermon. And he says that Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. We've all probably heard that statement before. But do you understand that statement? Because to his audience, it was like nails going down a blackboard. Because as we shall see, he was making a definite, definitive statement about who he was and why he came. He's going to, uh, it's so important that he's going to repeat it in verse 48 and then expand on it in verse 51. Where Jesus is going to add that he is the living bread. Now, this is such a tremendous passage, and there's so much going on here within these verses because it talks about God's part in salvation. 
It talks about man's part in salvation. It talks about election. It talks about God's irresistible grace. Uh, It talks about the security of the believer. And many of those things we'll just touch upon today and leave them just for another day. But here, at the heart of his message, in John chapter 6, he makes this statement, I am the bread of life. This is the first of the I am statements that is found in the midst of a very lengthy discourse or a sermon. And the Gospel of John is known for his discourses. The Gospel of Matthew is known for the quoting of the Old Testament. The Gospel of Mark is known for the actions that are done by Christ. The Gospel of Luke is known for its parables. And here within this one section, our Lord is in the middle of a sermon. And to fully understand what is going on, you need to know the immediate context and then the far context. Because without knowing that, you won't get the full understanding. So to look at things very quickly, you have to go back to the beginning of chapter 6. At the beginning of chapter 6, the Lord has, uh, it's the feeding of the 5,000. It's our Lord feeding uh, the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes, essentially out of a Snoopy lunchbox. And out of a child's lunchbox, there, there were some fishes. They were probably the size of sardines. Not enough to sort of feed, barely enough to feed one, I guess, but not enough to feed the 5,000. They were small fishes and a little amount of bread. But our Lord here at the beginning of chapter 6 brings out one of the most important miracles that our Lord does because this is the only miracle that our Lord does that is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. And in Matthew's account, he even adds the the fact that the 5,000 were only the count of the men. And so there could have been as many as 20,000 people who are being fed out of a boy's Snoopy lunchbox. And so they ate. And as the beginning of chapter 6 unfolds, we, we found out that they kept eating until they could not eat anymore. And in verse, verse 11, they eat as much as they wanted. They were filled. The original there has the idea of they were satisfied. And so they just didn't snack. They ate until they had to pop the button on their pants. You know, they ate so much. And so they ate so much to where they had leftovers. They have 12 baskets of leftovers that the disciples gathered up. And then in verse 14, we we find this. Therefore, when the people saw the sign in which he had performed and said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And so when Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And so Jesus goes off, and then beginning in in verse uh, uh, 22, it's the next day. um, It's the next day the people begin to look for him, and they find out that him and disciples were gone. Our Lord sent the disciples in a boat and sent them to the other side, and he was going to meet them there. And so as the disciples were rowing in the evening, they were about three miles offshore when a storm arose. The wind was blowing. The waves were crashing. 
And um, they even thought that, in Matthew's account, gives us the picture that they thought they saw a ghost and they were filled with fear. But look at verse 20, just as a footnote, just because I find this very humorous. Our Lord's response as he approached the boat, as he walks on the water, he says to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. This is all the mist with the wind blowing and the rain pouring and the lightning crashing and the waves crashing, and he's there. It's, it's just me. And so um, in, verse, um, in verse 21, we have this other great miracle, which, which I really like, that gets missed all the time, because um, from there, as soon as he gets in the, in the boat, it says in verse 21, immediately the boat was at land, which they were going. Now, I'm not sure about you, but in my mind's eye, he gets into the boat and then, they're there, they're, they're done. They're three miles off and they're there. And I can picture the hair blowing and that's my mind's eye. I, I, I can't help it. So... And so then in verse 22 is where I wanted to go. The people are saying, where did Jesus go? And so in verse, in verse 25, they found him on the other side and said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Well, he's over in Capernaum right now. And from verse 59, we find out that Jesus is, is in a synagogue. He was probably teaching where this huge crowd sort of uh, comes in, finds him. And in verse 26, he begins his sermon. And he answered them and says, truly, truly. Now, whenever you see the word truly, truly, or verily, verily, or truthfully, truthfully, it's an emphasis on this is very important. Don't miss this. So our Lord says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So basically, our Lord is saying, you're not here to see a sign. You're here to eat. You had a free meal, and now you want some more. And so it's the next day, and they weren't just hungry, but they were hangry. They wanted more. And so now in verse 30, we find that, and they said to him, what then shall you do for a sign so that we may see and believe in you? Well, they wanted to see an even greater sign. They wanted to see something even bigger. And they, and they go back um, in verse 31 and says, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, for it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And so in their mind, they're thinking Old Testament. Well, we had, we had food for one day. But when our forefathers were in the wilderness, they ate every day. We want, we're hungry now. Let's give us some food. They're thinking very physically, very uh, of the physical realm. So they wanted to see a sign so they could believe. Believe should be in quotes because they, they, they didn't want to believe. They just wanted to eat. And so they go back to one of the historic moments in their history in which God provided food in the midst of a barren desert. And they go on to say, give us food like manna so we can believe that you are from God. And so Jesus is going to use their comment and their new state of renewed hunger to teach them a spiritual lesson. In which he is going to say that I am going to be this bread. 
So that's near context. But the far context, I want you to look at very quickly to Exodus chapter 16. Because you know about the, the manna from heaven. But I just want to pull out a couple things here in Exodus chapter 16 that you need to know that as he brings this up and as he expounds on it, it will give you a greater appreciation and understanding of what is going on. And so you need to know something about manna because Jesus is going to offer to him that not only is he the bread of life, but he's a greater manna, a greater bread than what God had provided. And so in Exodus chapter 16, we have that, that very familiar passage in which they're in the wilderness being hungry and God provides them to eat. Because in verse 3, they have a, real, a, real, a realization of now that we've left Egypt, what are we going to eat? And so we had the sons of Israel said to them, what or would that we die by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, what we um, sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, and you have brought us out of this, into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. They're thinking we had it better in slavery than coming here, being uh, freed by God, just to die of lack of food. Now, you have to think there may have been as many as two million people who exited out of, out of Egypt. And if you think about how large that number would have been, they would have covered 81 square miles. There's a lot of people. And so they started to complain, which they were very good at, by the way. And then in verse 4, we find, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Keep that phrase in mind, the bread from heaven. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. So God will provide and he will see to what degree will they obey how to eat. And so God is going to provide manna. And this picture of God providing manna is a shadow or a picture of our Lord being this bread. And so when God's people traveled through the wilderness, they were dependent upon God to provide every day. And it's going to last for, for the entire time in which they were in the wilderness. God provided the food, and he wanted to teach them something about their relationship with him. That God would provide everything that they would need. And so every day they would have to go out and collect. And they only had to collect just enough to provide for them. So in verse 13, in the morning there would be a layer of dew. And then when the dew evaporated on the surface of the, of, of the plants was a, in verse 14, a fine flake-like thing. Fine as the frost on the ground. So by, that by verse 15, they said, what's that? And Moses says, it is the bread which the Lord has given to you. And so they, they couldn't hoard it. They couldn't take enough so that they could have enough for, their, for the next month. They, they had to collect it daily outside of Friday in which they had to collect enough for the Sabbath, which was the next day, because it didn't come. But in verse 20, if they did not listen to Moses, it would... 
breed worms and became, uh, became foul. And that's exactly what happened. And then in verse 31, the house of Israel named it Mander, uh, manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and it tasted like wafers with honey. Had a great taste. They had to collect it, and then they formed bread out of it. And so God provided them on a daily basis their sustenance, what food they could live off of, and it was to be reckoned that it was provided by God on a physical realm. So they had to collect it daily, and they had to do it um, in the exact way that God prescribed. Go back to John chapter 6. So that's the far context, the real far. But that is when God, when our Lord begins to talk about manna, that's what the people are thinking, and that's what they are hearing. That in the past, God provided for them. And, and um, they wanted to see our Lord do a miracle just like that. And so in verse 27 of John chapter 6, Jesus tries to correct their thinking that, um, that they were there being hungry, looking for another free meal, but there is something greater than the manna that they had back in the Old Testament. Verse 27, our Lord says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. From on him the Father God has set his seal. Our Lord says there, You work for food, but that perishes. I have food. When you eat of it, you will not perish. So already there's this aspect of a physical food in which you eat, but I have something that will give you something much greater, eternal life. And the people make a response in verse 28. And our Lord's statement is very similar to what our Lord said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, where the woman at the well needed to collect water for the thirst that they would have during the course of a day. And our Lord tells her, when you drink that water at the well, you will still thirst. But I have water that if you drink of it, you'll never thirst again. And so she wants that water. And so there's, there's a parallel here. And the people's response here, that they are ready, all right? And they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Now, I have that, that word works there circled in my Bible because it's in the plural. They wanted to know what can we do for God to provide. They were ready for a list. They, I'm sure they had their big click out and they wanted to write on their scroll uh, the long list that God required. But our Lord's answer wasn't that way. Our Lord answered and said this in verse 29. This is the work, singular of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They were looking for works. This is the work. It's interesting because the world thinks that to come to God, it's a long list. A long list of do's and don'ts. And every religion has it. Every religion said you have to do this or that or whatever. And that's, uh, that's what you can do to appease God, to come closer to God, to have a deep relationship with God. 
Our Lord said, this is the work, singular of God. And then he defines it to believe in him. And so our Lord then comes to verse 35 with that as the background and says this, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. It's interesting. There are seven things that I just want to bring out this morning about this one statement, some of which are very obvious, some of which you need to sort of think about. But they are statements to where when he makes this statement, it's revolutionary. Not just because it's a statement for evangelism to get people to believe that he is the son of God, but for the believer, it deepens our faith and appreciation in him and what he has done and accomplished. And so, first of all, it is, this is a statement of his divinity. When he says that I am the bread of life, it's a dramatic way of him saying that he is God in the flesh. Because here he used the term, I am. And this is the first of the seven I am statements in which John gives us to have us see that he is God. He is 100% God and 100% man. And for most people reading this passage, they would just fly over that. But his audience knew. Because it goes back to, in Exodus chapter 3, to the burning bush. To where Moses, he's out in the wilderness, as you know, and the angel of the Lord appears to him. And he's fascinated. Why isn't this bush getting burnt up? And God tells him, Moses, 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 remove your sandals from your feet, for this is holy ground. So he does so, and God tells him, I want you to go back to Egypt. And so he says, well, what name shall I tell the people who has sent me? And as you know, he says, I am who I am. And he said, you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Perhaps this is one of the greatest names for God that he has given to us. It comes from the word to be. And... If you look at a bad English version of that, it is, I is. I am everything that there is. I am complete in myself. Theologians has given this aspect a theological term. It's the uh, aseity of God. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Well, what does that mean? It means that God is. God is everything who he is. R.C. Sproul has said this about the Asidia God. He says that when I see the word Asidi, it gives chills up my spine. Because of that little word is captured all of the glory and the perfection of God's being. I am all that there is. It covers the aspect that God is absolutely independent and self-sufficient. He always was and always will be. He's not dependent upon anyone or, or anything. 
And so he lacks nothing. He, he never learns anything. Everything that there is, he already is. So when he tells Moses, tell him that this is my name, I am, it encompasses all of the glory and perfection of God's being. To say I am, the I am, is saying that God is the same forever, that he never changes. He never increases. He never decreases. He is completely self-sufficient in himself. It doesn't say that I, I was who I am or I will be who I am, but I am who I am. And, Je- and Jesus identifies himself with, with this when he makes the statement that I am the living bread. It goes back to John chapter 1 in the opening verses because John lays down this foundation in the first four verses where he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you talk to a Jehovah Witness when he, when he opens the green phantom or his, his green Bible that he has, they have the word, the, the word was a God. Well, in the original, there's no indefinite article. It says the word was God. And then when you jump down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled is the word there. He, they pitched, he pitched a tent among, among us. He dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus is God. He was in the beginning. He always was. And when he uses this term, he's equating himself with God. And this aspect differentiates biblical Christianity from every religion and every cult. Because when Mr. Jehovah Witness comes to the door or Mr. Mormon comes to your door, they do not believe that. They believe that Jesus is a creative being. They do not believe that Jesus is the God-man. But Jesus, when he says this, he equates himself with God. He equates himself with being co-eternal, co-equal with the Father. And to have salvation with the Father is to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. And to deviate from this one iota, not only will you give, give yourself bad theology, but it will damn your soul to an eternity in hell. Jesus was God in the flesh. Only one who is fully God could make such a claim that he is about to make. Only one who is fully God can say that if you come to me, I will fully satisfy you in every area of this life and the next life. If you take one bite of me, you will never hunger again. Why? Because he is the bread of life. No man could ever fulfill such a claim, but only he can. Because he is a second member of the Trinity, he is the second member of the Godhead, and he's equating himself to the Father. But not only is this a statement of his divinity, but secondly, it's a statement of his humanity. When he makes this one statement in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, but he who believes in me will never thirst. It is under 
The implication is that he is the bread like the manna that came out of heaven. Because nine times in these verses, it repeats out of heaven. It's found once in verse 31, twice in verse 32, once in verse 33, in verse 38 and 41, 50, 51, and 58. So there's this comparison going on that as the manna was provided by God out of heaven, God has provided manna to you in me, and I am this living bread who has come down out of heaven, which exemplifies his humility. Because if he was God and came down to take on human flesh, as what Paul gives us a a nice picture of Philippians chapter 2 of that great Kenosis passage on how he humbled himself by taking on human flesh. And so he was always God, and he took on human flesh to become the God-man. 100% God and yet 100% man. And the people, they, they go on in, um, in verses 30 and 31, they begin to sort of question him about it because they wanted to see a greater miracle. And they, in, um, in verse 30, they, they say that we want to see a sign so that we can believe in you. And they look at what they did in Exodus chapter 16. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. And then they quote, Exodus 16, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And so then our Lord corrects their bad theology because it was under the context that Moses provided this, but it was coming from from the Father. But in verse 32, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. That word true there means genuine, authentic. God is providing something that is from heaven coming down to you that is a genuine bread, an authentic bread. And that the manna back in Exodus chapter 16 was just a foreshadow. But there was going to be a better bread, a true bread, than the manna that he provided. That he is now the genuine bread. And so in verses 33 and 34, they were still thinking about eating physical bread. And they said, for the bread of God that which uh, comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread. They want to eat this bread. And then he makes the statement, I am the bread of life. And then verse 38, he goes on to clarify, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he humbled himself through the incarnation to take on human flesh to fulfill the will of of the Father. But also he is saying that, that I'm here not to have my own agenda, but I'm coming to fulfill him who has sent me. So we get to see our Lord's great humility when he says that I am the bread out of heaven. Because we have there the sovereign becoming a servant. We have him descending from the bosom of the Father and taking on poorly human flesh. Him coming from the highest of heaven to descend down to the lowest of lows. To dwell among sinful men. We have the law, the giver of the law became under the law. 
We had the creator entering into his own creation. He entered this world from being praised in all eternity past to a place where he was rejected by those he loved. He became the son of man so that we might become the sons of God. So we have throughout this one passage him saying that I am out of heaven, which shows his great humility. But thirdly, when you look at this one statement, we find that this is a statement of his ability. It's a statement of ability because he gives us a word picture. He says, I am the bread of life. He's using a word picture, a metaphor, an analogy, if you would. He's not saying he's really bread because he's going to say, eat of me. You know, he's, he's not a cannibal. Uh, but he's making a comparison that he is like bread. So he is saying, what is food for your body? That he is going to be food for your soul if you partake. That he is bread for your soul. And so he is taking something that is most familiar to the Jewish culture and is mostly familiar to every culture because just about every culture has bread as a main staple of his culture. And so it's part of everyone's diet. Bread sustains because it nourishes. Bread gives life. And our Lord is saying that this bread is living bread. So without this bread, you do not have life. Because implied within, within, this, within this one statement is that they are spiritually dead. But when you eat of this bread, you have life. And he has the ability to give life. And that's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. It begins by saying that you're just spiritually dead. You're just dead men walking. You just don't know it. You have no spiritual relationship with God without this bread. Paul even goes on to say that you're at war with God, that one is hostile with God. But with this bread, you have life. You have an abundant life. You have spiritual life. You have eternal life. You have life that is so abundant and so satisfying because our Lord is the one that brings about that satisfaction. With this bread, you are reconciled back to God, so much so that Jesus can now call you friend. And so our Lord is saying that he is a source of all life. He has the ability to give one who has no life, life. He gives abundant, spiritual, eternal, and overflowing life. Without this bread, one looks for answers. One looks for satisfaction. Because it's going to use the term hunger. Because there's a craving that they're looking to satisfy. And there's nowhere else in this world that one can find it except through him. Because he is the one who gives life. Without this bread, life is hollow. It has no meaning. With this bread, you have eternal life. And he repeats it in verse 27 and verse 40 and verse 47 and verse 51. It's not just, just bread, but it has a spiritual component for it. So what kind of life is this? It's far more than just physical life. It's, in, it's an eternal life. 
That word there, eternal, is much more than just a duration in which something lasts forever. But it's the quality of life. There is a quality that our Lord gives a person to become fully satisfied in Him that begins now and will continue throughout all eternity. This eternal life dwells now in the person who will partake and eat of that bread. And the moment that a person gets saved and places their trust in him, heaven came down and transformed their life from what they were before. Eternal life is not something that's far off in the distance, that whenever I get there, that's when I have eternal life. But it starts the moment a person receives Christ as their Savior. The unsaved, they have uh, an everlasting life, but it's not this same kind of eternal life. They have a life of, of eternal judgment. But this life is a quality of life that only the Savior can give. It's a permanent life. And our Lord is, is going to go on to say how permanent this life is. Look at verse 37. These are great verses. These are all a message within itself. All, and I have that word circled in my Bible, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. And this is the will who has sent me, that of all he has given to me, that I lose what? Nothing. Nothing at all, but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. This shows us the security of faith that is available to everyone who eats of this bread. And our Lord is saying that he is the bread of life. If you eat of this bread, you will not be cast out, that none are lost. It shows the permanence of one's salvation. Because if you can lose your salvation, it would not be an eternal life. If I could lose my salvation, I know I would lose my eternal life. If there was a way for one to lose their salvation in six months, it would only be a six-month life. If you, you, if you could lose your salvation in 24 months, that would be a, a, a two-year life. But Jesus says here, and he offers a life that he makes available to him that's an eternal life. If you partake, it's there. And he loses none of them. And so the life Jesus offered never ends. It is always there. And it is a life that is far better than what anything this world has to offer. I like a statement that John MacArthur made, and this is a paraphrase because I couldn't find the exact wording, but it sort of stuck with me. He said that if you're an unbeliever, this is the best that life will ever get for you. But if you're a believer, this is... This life is the worst that will ever be for you. Because life is hard. But when you think about the life that our Lord offers us when we are standing before him, there is no comparison. 
This bread contains life. It's a quality of life that nothing this world could ever give a person. It's a divine life. It's not a human life. It is a life that only God could give you, which came down out of heaven from God. It's new life. It's life of God within your spiritually dead soul. It is a life to where it brings you into union and communion with our Lord. And it's a life that you cannot earn. No matter what you do, you cannot merit this life. Because they wanted a list. And he said, this is the singular thing that you do. And we'll see that in a moment. And so he's going to repeat himself in verse 51, which is at the heart of the gospel. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so if you eat this bread that Jesus is offering, he has the ability to give you this eternal life. But fourthly, as the time quickly goes by, we find that it is a statement of availability. When he makes this statement, it's a statement of availability. He says, the I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. He makes himself available with this bread to all who comes. This is our Lord's invitation that he gives to his hearers who have no ability to improve their spiritual standing before God. And here with the construction that our Lord makes, there's a parallelism that he uses. He says, he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. To come to Jesus is to believe in Jesus, and to believe in Jesus is to come to Jesus. That word come there is more than just having a religious experience. You have to come to Jesus. It's not someone who walks an aisle. It's not someone throwing a stick in a fire. It's not someone being baptized. It's not someone just attending church. It's not someone who, who, uh, who characterizes himself by how many services that they attend. It's not even what someone gives to the church. But it is coming to Jesus. And so many during our Lord's ministry came to Jesus physically, but they did not come to him spiritually. And by the time Jesus' ministry was, was coming to an end, even one of his own disciples would no longer walk with him. And so coming to Jesus means you need to take a spiritual step of faith. You need to decisively entrust your life to him. You just can't just walk towards him. You have to come fully to him. So you have to turn to him. You come out of the world and you come to Jesus. You leave everything that... You were behind and you come directly to him. That's what it means by counting the cost of Christ. And it is through this living bread that is a free gift that is all those who turn to him. And this bread was not a cheap bread because it costs our Lord his life. 
but is the first step of a lifelong journey of those who come to him. Because our Lord says, if you come to me, you won't hunger. It is only him that can bring satisfaction. So to find those answers to the, que- the big questions, why am I here? What purpose does life have? How can I have my sins forgiven? What can I do to remove the guilt that, are, that is heavy on my shoulders? One has to take and eat of the manna that the Lord provides. As God has provided food for his people, our Lord has provided salvation. And when you come and to do it in the exact way in which he prescribes, you find out that when you eat, how sweet it is, how life-changing it is. And so to come to Jesus, you must eat of this bread. And so you must come to Jesus as if you have nothing who needs everything. To come to Jesus as the one and only one who can save you and the one and only one who can satisfy you. And the moment that you do that, he will save you. He will declare you righteous in the sight of God. He will make you into a new creature and all will become new. He will give you hope when you had no hope. He will cleanse and wash away all of your sins. He will make you into one of the living stones in his body. And the moment that you do that, you become a follower of Jesus. You become a part of a living body of Christ. That living body in which the baton of the gospel was passed on from person to person since our Lord was around is available for you to take even now. No longer are you passive, but you are now active. No longer are you sitting on the sidelines, but you become active in the game of all eternity. And the Holy Spirit now empowers you with spiritual gifts to function within that body. But also, he didn't stop right there, though he could have. He also says that it also means to believe in him. So you come to him and you need to believe in him. That's very important because many people who grow up in the church believe about Jesus. They, They think he was a good man. They think he was a good teacher. He was a great moral leader, but they don't believe in Jesus. Even James says in chapter 2 and verse 19 that the demons also believe and tremble. But the demons don't believe, the demons don't get saved. So they have a belief, but it doesn't save them. And those who die without Jesus and believe about Jesus, they won't be saved because of that preposition that we see there is is the word in. You have to believe in Jesus. That word means they're into Jesus. You have to believe that he is God, that he is the God-man. You have to believe in his death, his burial, his resurrection. You turn from your sin and you turn to Christ, that he is the only way for salvation to God. And it's a decisive decision that one makes when they see their hopelessness and helplessness. It's almost like going to the airport on vacation. To get to your destination, some beach somewhere maybe, you have to get into the plane. You can't go to the airport and look at the window and see the plane. You have to get into it. You can't just hear the call of the plane that it is loading and stay at the coffee shop. 
you have to make a decisive decision. See your sinfulness and turn to Christ. And so many in the evangelical church today, they look like Christians and they believe about Jesus, but they don't have their faith in Jesus because they've never tasted him. They're interested in church and they're good at playing church, but they don't have their faith in Christ. Because even in John chapter 2, our Lord is preaching and it says that many believe. But then in verse 24, it says, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And so basically John is saying even early on in Jesus' ministry, people had a verbal acknowledgement of him. But as someone said, that Jesus had no faith in their faith. And so when Jesus says, believe in me, it's a call for one to turn to him in complete trust and to commit their life over to them. And he will change their life. But fifthly, in the moments that we have left, it's a statement of sufficiency. Our Lord is completely sufficient in his statement. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and will not thirst. It is a statement in which our Lord is saying that he is completely sufficient. It's interesting because he puts it into the negative here, which emphasizes the positive. Like when Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's putting it into the negative to emphasize that I'm thrilled about the gospel. I'm excited about the gospel. And when he says this statement, if you come to me, you will not hunger. He is saying for double impact that he will completely satisfy you. 100%. No matter what this life can throw to you, you know you will find your satisfaction in him. No matter how much things hurt, no matter how hard things can be, he is there to completely satisfy one's soul. He's not there giving out this satisfaction in a cheap way. Just, you know, throws out uh, tidbits just for you to hang on and want more. But it's a 100% satisfaction. And he says that you will never hunger. You will never thirst. So as our faith grows deeper in, in Christ, we have that confidence to know no matter how much the disappointment is, no how much pain this life can hurl at us, no, no matter what may come about, we can go to him in confidence to know that he will bring about his glory through our life because he provides complete satisfaction. When we sung this morning, it is well with my soul, that was at the mind of the hymn writer when he wrote the first verse, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well. It is well with my soul. Why? How could one ever say that? Because you will never hunger and you will never thirst. Because one finds their complete satisfaction with him.
Not only that, we find that, that this is a statement of exclusivity. This is a statement that our Lord makes is, that is an um, exclusive statement. He says that I am the bread of life. Huh. This is very important because this is a definite article in the original. And you may miss this. But he is saying that he is the only bread of life. He's the bread of life. He's not a bread of life. He's not one of many breads of life. He is saying that I am the only bread that brings about satisfaction. The only bread that will make one not hunger. And the only bread that won't have one thirst. He's the only one. The world says there are many ways to God. Just got to get on the right spoke and get, get there. But the Lord does not say that. He's saying that I am the only way. It's not a buffet on Sunday in which one can go to and sort of pick out which type of bread you want. If you want the pump nickel, if you want the rye, just sort of choose that one and not choose that one. If you want a bagel, go ahead and take that. But the Lord is saying that he is the only bread in one can, that one has to eat from to have this eternal life. So much so that when he gets to John chapter 14, one of the verses that I always use when I evangelize, that our Lord says that, which is one of the I am statements, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Ain't no one come to the Father. No one. But through him. He is the exclusive way for salvation. It's not found in Mary. It's not found in the Pope. It's not found in the church. It's not found in praying to the saints. It's, it's not found in doing some kind of work to please God. But it's found in Jesus. You can't just have a universal understanding that everyone's going to get saved. That won't do it. It's only found at the cross of Jesus. That Jesus Christ is the only Savior. It's not in good works. It's not in higher learning. It's not in some kind of religious experience. It's not found in some external standards. It's not found in some self-denial or affliction. All those Paul talks about in, in Colossians. It's only found in Jesus alone. Everything else is spiritual junk food. It will never satisfy. But sixthly, it's a statement of alienation. When he makes this statement... The, the audience, they, they hate it. Verse 36, he, he even alludes to it. But I say to you, you've seen me. You've seen my miracles, yet you do not believe. Then jump down to verse 31. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him. They were th still thinking physically. They said, because he said, I am the bread that came out of heaven. You know, is this not Joseph, you know, from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem? We know his mother and father, and he's coming down out of heaven. What? They weren't getting it, but it just wasn't questioning. They were complaining. This, this, this is a grumbling which shows their unbelief. And then he begins to talk about, you have to eat of me, which, which to a Jew is like, you know, that's goes against you know, the laws of Moses. We can't be eating physically bread and drinking of the blood. But he's claiming to be God. They knew it. Problem was, they didn't have ears to hear. Didn't have eyes to see because they were spiritually dead. So much so that by John chapter 10, they pick up stones because they want to stone him. 
Verse 43, our Lord said to them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me. Here we see God's irresistible grace. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That's salvation from God's side. God is the one who's drawing and giving out faith. And I will raise him up on the last day. And that is, it is written in the prophets, they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he's going to repeat himself. And he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And so a Lord is saying that I am this greater manna. You have to eat of me. Your ancestors, our forefathers were in the wilderness. They had to eat every single day or they would die. And they all did die. But if you eat of me, it's a one-time act. It will give you eternal life. And to the world and the unbelieving, this is foolishness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, you know, the, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And look at verse 666. Our Jesus says this, he goes through it in greater detail than what we have time for, and as the result of this, many of his, of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him any longer. The mass of people began to leave. They were bummed out. I, I, I can't eat of, of this bread. So much so that our Lord, he asked the twelve in verse 67, Jesus said to them, you do not want to go away also, do you? And look what, look what Peter says in verse 68, Lord, to whom Shall we go? Where are we going to go? But the one, you have the words of life. And so our Lord is using this object lesson to say, where are you going to go? Go to the one who satisfies you. Go to the one who can bring true satisfaction. Because as the psalmist said in Psalm 34 and verse 8, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, there's so much more than what could be said. And I apologize for the length of time that we have gone to. But Father, there may be someone here who has never tasted and never truly understood that they needed to come and to believe and to have eternal life. Father, if, if there is someone here, let them ask one of the men in the back with a name tag on how they could pray with them and open the word and to know that they can have eternal life that is found in the Son. They can come to myself. They can come to Pastor Joey. But let no one leave this place without having the assurance but also, Father, let us who know our Savior be reminded of how great of a Savior we have, that only He brings about true satisfaction. 
And how quickly we can forget that. But it is found in him. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for being the bread of life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Usually we have a closing hymn, but uh, this will be our benediction. So may the Lord bless you, make his face to shine upon you, and keep you safe until we gather again next week. Uh, May the Lord bless you. That's our service. Thanks.